Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and over a hundred years ago, the unknown warrior, a common soldier, and an unidentified casualty of war was buried in Westminster Abbey. It was a ceremony with all the pomp and glory of an empire at its zenith. King George V looked on as a hundred Victoria crossbearers formed a guard of honour, and an unknown soldier was laid to rest. Joining Dan Snow on this episode of the World Wars is author and historian Juliet Nicholson, Her research has explored the repercussions of the Great War, the significance of this symbolic act, and the fascinating backstory behind the Unknown Warrior. I know you're going to love this episode, so please like, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who has a passion for the World Wars. Juliet, good to see you again. Lovely to be here, Dan. Really lovely to see you too. Well, it's good to have you back this time on the podcast to talk about The Unknown Warrior, which I always think is such an important part of our national story. This was a revolutionary moment in some ways, wasn't it? The burial of the unknown soldier was unprecedented, revolutionary in that there had been no burials during the First World War because none of the bodies were repatriated. The process of repatriation is such a scale of death was considered by the government too daunting. So the decision was made very early on in the war that irrespective of your status as a soldier, as a sailor, and later as an airman, if you died, you would be buried where you fell. So this left the country with an inability to hold a funeral, to have a grave, to have a place to go to mourn. This, as everybody knows, is an enormously disturbing way for somebody who wishes to commemorate somebody they loved who died. So there were, you know, families of three quarters of a million people unable to mourn their loved ones. And there was a void in the country of despair about this, recognised by the government, who the year before the unknown warrior was buried, had decided that a two-minute silence would be a way of bringing the focus onto this scale of death. And it worked. It was an extraordinarily clever and simple idea to have 
two minutes at 11 o'clock at the moment that the guns had fallen silent in 1918 to have every year two minutes as Big Ben strikes 11 o'clock of national silence and reflection. But the trouble with that was that it lacked humanity and it was the human aspect of death that people were missing so much, the actual visualisation of a coffin, of a grave. And so this brilliant idea by a vicar, a padre, a British vicar who had served at the Western Front and noticed that when a soldier died and his identifying marks had been blown away or disappeared, that a simple cross would be put up by his colleagues and it would just say an unknown soldier and this tribute to somebody even someone without a name struck this vicar David Railton as something significant helpful in the mourning process and a way in which to dignify death so he after the war in 1920 two years after the armistice he suggested to the Dean of Westminster that a body, one body, should be brought back to Britain to be the symbolic body of all of those who had died. And his idea was put to the King, George V, who was originally quite reluctant to go along with this, being a sort of cautious man, thought this might be a bit mawkish, that this might provoke some sort of wild hysteria around the country. But gradually the idea and his advisers and the government persuaded the king that it would be a wonderful thing to do. And so four bodies were disinterred from four different battlegrounds in Europe. And the head of the army was asked to pick one of these four bodies, none of which had any identifying marks on them. No one had any idea who any of them were, but there were four chosen just to make sure that this was a random choice. I'm sure the King did think it was mawkish, but was there something dangerous almost about it? You know, you've got David Lloyd George, this common-born Prime Minister. Now you've got common soldiers being elevated almost to the rank of kings. Is it, There's something a little bit revolutionary about this, isn't there? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a very off-field idea. And of course, at the time, the class system was utterly rigid in Britain and officers tended to be public schoolboys almost exclusively, who also, if they had died, had not been repatriated. There had been no discrimination between rank And so already there was some sense of equanimity and of class barrier in that way, having been abandoned, at least for the duration of the war. And it was extremely important, David Railton felt, that this soldier, he may have been an officer, he may have been a public schoolboy, but he may not, and it was very likely that he was not, and therefore the population could invest this unknown soldier with the identity of their son, their husband, their father, their fiancé. It was obviously a man, but that was the, the scale of the war at the time. It was a male scale of death. 
And so this ability for him to be any man, anyone, was, of course, the right thing to do. And the king, yes, of course, the mawkishness, but you're right also, do we really want an anybody? Because the, the soldier was to be buried in Westminster Abbey among kings and queens. He was to be given the most prestigious burial ground in the country. And that was, yeah, re pretty revolutionary and absolutely brilliant. Tell me about the way in which the body was brought back, because there was just symbolism at every single turn of this story. Yes, the body was invested with the highest honours from the very moment in which the head of the army, General Wyatt, chose that particular body. A coffin had been sent, made from Britain, had been sent over by the royal undertakers, which was made of oak from Hampton Court. A sword that belonged to George V accompanied the empty coffin when it arrived in this little village of Saint-Paul-Ternoise. And immediately a guard of honour was assembled around the coffin as the body was placed inside it, wrapped in sacking. The coffin began this ceremonial and hugely grand, as if it was indeed a royal person, back to England, across France, on a boat, across the Channel, already sort of decked in the most beautiful flowers, where at Dover, a train was waiting to carry the coffin into London, and the carriage of the train had had its roof painted white, so that as the train made its way from Dover up to Victoria Station in London, the light of the moon shone onto the carriage roof and these hundreds and hundreds of bystanders standing in the sort of railway cuttings as the train went past knew that inside this particular carriage with its white gleaming roof lit by the light of the moon contained the body of this young lad who may well have been a relation of their own. And the carriage was also lined with wonderful smelling herbs, with rosemary for remembrance and with bay leaves. And when it arrived in Victoria Station, again, a ceremonial guard greeted it. And the coffin lay in state overnight on the night of the 10th of November, 1920, on platform eight of Victoria Station. Whenever I go there, I go to think of that coffin lying there with that young man, invested with the significance of a king, or a queen, maybe I could say. On the morning of the 11th of November, 1920, the coffin began its journey towards the cenotaph. And the cenotaph was going to be on the monument, which, was to commemorate, as it said on the cenotaph, the glorious dead, a monument built as a temporary structure the year before, designed by Edwin Lutyens as a prop, in a way, for a march past to commemorate the end of the First World War, had been such a hit, such a place of focus for grief, that it was decided that by 1920, the cenotaph would be turned into a stone permanent structure 
was also unveiled on the morning of 1920 and November the 11th. And so the procession with the unknown soldier made its way through the streets of London that day. And the crowds had come out en masse because, of course, don't forget, there was not even radio, let alone television, in 1920. So if you wanted to see something, to experience at that moment something that really mattered to you, you needed to leave your home and come there. And so the crowds were thick, 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 20 deep from Victoria Station all the way through to Whitehall. People were wearing their hats as they did. People were silent. People were holding little bunches of flowers, some brought from their own gardens, gathered together for the first funeral that many of them could remember, and certainly the first funeral since the ending of the First World War. And as the carriage bearing the coffin came nearer, it was this humanity that struck every single person in the crowd because on top of the coffin, first of all, was the Union flag, one that had been used by David Railton, the vicar whose idea this had been, when he was on the battlefield. And the flag was still covered in mud and bloodstained. And on top of that was not only the king's sword, but there was also the soldier's webbing belt and his helmet, his faintly dented helmet. And this detail, these two tiny daily sort of quotidian symbols of the reality of the man, anybody who had had a soldier in their life would have recognized that wedding belt and that sold that helmet and it was the poignancy of his own private possessions that prompted the sobs that were rippling through the crowd as they watched the carriage pass by i'm also so struck by the fact they gathered together these old War horses, the senior commanders of the British imperial war effort, by the way, many of whom absolutely hated each other, but for this key moment. Yes, I mean, it was. It was a crowd mixed up of veteran soldiers, of many, many, many civilians, and of course of women and children. Children who missed their father, maybe children who had barely even known their father, or maybe their grandfather. And so it was a completely sort of cosmopolitan crowd of thousands and thousands of people for whom this moment was, for many, I think, the most significant of their lives. And yet the chief mourner was the king, who was himself humbled by the size of the crowd and by the significance that was given to this civilian soldier, this unknown soldier, who may not have been born, almost certainly not born, of royal blood. So the contrast between the grandest figurehead, the king himself, and people who were from humbler backgrounds, standing together in joint commemoration and remembrance 
and praise for all of those who had died. And it was a beautiful day that day. The sun was shining. And it was said, the Times wrote that day, that there was a tenderness in the breeze. It was this absolutely, let alone a kind of riot or a sort of hysterical, mawkish crying. There was this quiet, absolutely beautiful November day in which uh, people gave respect to another fellow human being who had given his life for them. So, Juliet, we get the King Emperor, George V, members of the royal family, senior commanders of the British Empire. They accompany... There is a cortege which goes round Hyde Park Corner, Whitehall, and eventually gets to, to Westminster Abbey. What happens there? Well, another sort of pretty revolutionary decision had been made in that the grave, the final resting place for the unknown warrior, was to be right in the entrance to the abbey. And so the stone had been removed and a deep grave had been dug and filled with mud from Flanders, the mud in which the warrior had himself fallen. And at that service, that final burial service, a sort of very moving decision had been made to invite women for it to become a focus for women. So while the king indeed was there, along with Queen Mary, who was very distressed by the whole experience, visibly so, very uncharacteristically moved, tearful, along with them and the other dignitaries and military high-ups were a thousand women who were widows and mothers. And so the emphasis was for the morning of that final moment was on the women, on the people who had carried their bereavement so nobly and with such difficulty. And as the coffin was lowered into the grave right at the entrance of Westminster Abbey, mud from the battlefields, which had been brought specially over, scattered the top of the coffin. The coffin was remained without this marble, a sort of lid on it, for the rest of the day and into the following day, so that the crowds who were so enormous outside the abbey could file past to pay their final respects before the coffin was closed. And this significance of putting the grave at the entrance to the abbey prevails today, the significance, because whenever a king or a queen comes to be married, to be buried, to be crowned, the monarch is required to sidestep the grave. You need to walk round it before you resume your steps up the aisle of the abbey. It's always banked by poppies, whatever day of the year, and sometimes, occasionally, a glorious arrangement of spring flowers can be put around it. But I notice that the Queen went last week to pay her respects on her own, and the photograph of her on her own in the Abbey with just one member of the Abbey staff and, and one military aide, of her standing there, this small figure in black, 
paying her respects to this unknown warrior is absolutely heartbreakingly moving, I think, so that 100 years later, our own monarch is still paying her respects almost to somebody who is or feels still 100 years later the symbol of why we have our democracy, why we have our freedoms. What's your latest book called, Juliet? I've written this time, nearly 50 years after we are talking about today. It's the story of a very cold winter in 1962 to 3, when the snow fell from Boxing Day and did not stop for three months. And we were paralysed into a sort of lockdown. And when we emerged from that lockdown, everything was so much better. Well, that sounds very topical. I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.